2: Hey, welcome to Going Off Track, the podcast where we just, we talk a lot. Today is an incredible episode. Lyle Pressler of Minor Thread is here. Minor Thread is a band that changed my life. I think it's safe to say changed all of our lives. Here, joined by Brad, Mike, and Jonah. We're not talking a lot because this episode with Lyle is so good. We're just throwing it up the whole, the whole episode. We didn't edit anything. So uh, sadly, Mike wasn't there.
0: Nope.
2: How do you feel? Terrible. Yeah, I would too. It was pretty good. Okay. You're going to hear how awesome it was and how um, sad Mike is, Everstone. So, Lau Pressler, Minor Threat. You're going to learn stuff. It's just awesome. It's going off track. This is very exciting, off track listeners. Uh, Sadly, and this is the sad part Mike Kangemi, the people's producer, cannot be here because he's actually out producing. But. Producer Brad's here. Uh, what did I call you last time? Journalist of the Stars?
3: You called me Jonah Matrango last time. Did I really? I thought it's, that's what you were saying. Oh, like, did I really? Like you, like, said, you said to the stars. But you said to the stars.
2: Okay. Jonah Bear, a.k.a. I, I've never done that. That's obnoxious. Okay. So this is, this is, this is cool because we can all legitimately geek out. Uh, in the studio, Lyle Presslar from Minor Threat. The music industry itself, a slew of other brands, but specifically, I can start off by saying, your band changed my life. Oh boy! And I've said this to you before, yes, <laughs> uh, because we have we have a fun connection. Uh, Lyle's wife and my wife used to work together at VH1. When I met uh, your wife. She told me this great story about it. She had no idea about anything about minor threat, and I think I reacted with the "What I, huh? Something I don't understand." I'm leaving your office, and I'm taking this sticker with me. Um, but begin with the story of I moved back from Germany. My dad was in the military. Arrive uh, in Northern Virginia. And was listening to the hardest sounding bands I could find, which was Bon Jovi and Cinderella. And this was just it. And then uh, I met my best friend in high school, this guy, Bert. And he went w- came over to my house. What is the matter with you? And he gave me Out of Step. And I, I listened to it. And the skies opened. I, I understood everything. There were, there were birds singing. Um, well, they were yelling more, not really singing. Uh, and cursing, and, too. And cursing, yeah, a lot right. of swearing. Yeah, Things made sense. And I didn't understand why they made sense until years later, I was watching the Beatles anthology. And George Harrison said the first time he heard sitar music, he went, oh, this sounds familiar. And hmm. and it, it made everything clear. So the first time I heard minor threat, I was like, oh, this is where... This is where my sensibilities lie. This is where, like, I was like, I I knew this music, but I'd never heard it before. So there you go, Lyle. What do you think of that? (laughs) What year was this? This was, God, 87,
1: 88? Right. That's what I call the fallow period. The fallow. What does that mean? Fallow period. Well, you know, we broke up in 1983. Mm -hmm. Um, And after we broke up, I essentially kind of split. The scene, mm-hmm. so to speak. I mean, there was still a, a so-called hardcore scene all mm-hmm. over the country. Um, but I just turned my sights elsewhere. I planned to go back to college. And I started playing in The Meat Men, which was just basically a weekend laugher. Um, and <laughs> very
0: some of us. Uh,
1: okay. Brad we, I was disgusting. We, 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 talk we can talk about that. Brad
2: is, is, is saw many a Meat Men show, we okay, learned today. Okay.
1: Um, but essentially... What happens is if you if you drop out of a scene, you you know within two weeks you you don't exist anymore as far as people are concerned. And what happened was, from the standpoint of the band, was that after our breakup, there was a certain amount of acrimony, and there was not much sort of business being done with respect to the band for a number of years. And I think we also sort of fell off the radar to the point where I would say between 1983 and 1990, 91. There really wasn't much happening on the band. And then all of a sudden, we know what happened in 1991. And all of a sudden, Minor Threat got sort of catapulted back up and everyone started talking about it. And then I'd pick up, you know, a spin magazine and there'd be three references. And I couldn't believe it, frankly, because I hadn't really it hadn't really occurred to me. When I went to work at Caroline Records in 1990, if anybody knew anything about Minor Threat, nobody said anything. Now I think some people just didn't want to say anything, but there was a there there was a person working there who uh, was a very very big t- insider in the indie industry, and one time I said, and I'm going to offend people here, but I said I am so sick of Sonic Youth, I am so sick of them, and I I you, you don't even want to know what my earliest memories are of Sonic Youth, but. I am so sick of them. And she said, without Sonic Youth, your band would have been nothing. <laughs> and I said, wow. <laughs> I said, well, I heard Sonic Youth first time in 1984, and we broke up in 83, so I'm not exactly sure how the chronology works on that one. <laughs> but that was, that was essentially the prevail, because there were so many great new things that were happening, and, and I think that, and indie rock was exploding, and minor threat and the hardcore thing just sort of got pushed away and then all of a sudden it just came back and it was and then from that point on it's been rather i mean to me incredible i mean i i had no i had no idea that there was going to be that much sort of ripple effect with the band
2: it's it's obnoxious how, how it goes i mean we were uh you know in a previous podcast uh we're talking about people were saying like you know having arguments about, you know, the top five best punk bands. And, you know, someone didn't include, like, Fat Mike didn't include Minor Threat. You know, like, well, how can you you not include Minor Threat? Now, this was an interesting... Either
1: did Billy Joe Armstrong in that long list of bands that he did when I guess they won the Grammy or whatever. I sat there at my TV going, say it, say it, say it. I know the other guys in the band like that, say it. He wouldn't do it. But it should be notated that
0: Mike did include no effects. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's a surprise. That's
1: a real surprise to me. Oh, that's hilarious. I have to tell you a funny story about that. Um, I mean, we when I was at Caroline, we actually distributed no effects through Epitaph mm-hmm. and whatever. And we also did some things with Fat Wreck. So we, we had sort of a, a interesting relationship with them. But I went out to L.A., and... The guitar player, what's his name? Eric. Eric. Mm, Melvin. I'm I'm at this show, and this guy comes up to me. I've never, I don't know who he is, and he says, "Hi, I'm really really sorry about not paying royalties." And I just looked at him. and I was like, "What are you talking about?" And he oh, says, yeah. "I'm from NoFX," and I said, "Okay." And he said, "I'm really really sorry. We never paid you royalties on Straight Edge." <laughs> and. I didn't even know what he was talking about. I didn't know the record. I <laughs> never the the I'd never heard the i never heard the version of it. i never had any idea. And so so I um so I said, Oh well, you know, don't worry about it. I mean, what are you gonna say? You're right. in a club, this guy comes up to you. Buy me a drink. You buy me a drink, something <laughs> like that. And and he, he so I never heard anything more about it. But when I got back home, I I emailed Ian and I said um, are you aware of the fact that uh, apparently this band NoFX covered Straight Edge? And he's like, Yeah, so what? And I said, Well, you know, they do sell a lot of records. I mean, a lot of records. <laughs> and he said, Send me the sound scan on it. Right. So I popped it up, and it was something like 520,000 units or something crazy like that. So he said, Well, Ian said, Well, this is outrageous. You know, we got to get after these guys. So, and this brings me to a point I'm sure you're going to want to know about our relationship. Meyer Threat has a very odd structure. We're like the security council, the four of us, Um, meaning that it's one vote, one man. But any one vote, negative vote, trashes the whole thing. So you can you can veto its total veto power. You can abstain as well Mm -hmm. if you don't feel like you want to. So I'm sitting there going, let's go after him, because, I mean, Fat Mike was a very aggressive businessman. And I sort of figured if he's going to be that aggressive with regard to his stuff, then he ought to pay up and so i said let's go get him and ian said let's go get him and jeff said let's go get him and brian said i have too great a relationship with these people we can't go get him." so fat mike if you're out there um you got away with it (laughs) did slayer get away with it no no slayer actually slayer not only did not get away with it but didn't try and it contacted us in advance to ask permission wow they did guilty of being white right yeah, yeah, oh. and 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 they were no, they were very straight up. Although another story, I'm out in L.A. and who comes up to me but Kerry King, and he's like, I oh. saw him from a mile away. Well, yeah, it was a really crowded place, <laughs> and he was with like the guys from Metallica. So like, he comes up and he and he's like, hey man, uh, is Ian really mad at us? And I said, Mat what do you mean? He's like, you know, our cover. I said, Well, you guys asked permission to do it. We said yes. He said, like, Yeah, but I think he's mad at me. I said, He doesn't really care about you. I'm really sorry to tell you. <laughs> I don't think Ian's really sitting around worried about what Slayer's doing today. And he said, Let me ask you something. When did Ian become such a liberal? i don't know i think he meant he thought that minor threat was some ultra right band and that fugazi was some ultra left band i don't know what he was actually listening to but i think he i think he construed guilty of being white as being some sort of a call to arms yeah which, i
3: remember it being controversial because they changed it to guilty of being right right or exactly
2: wait slayer did
3: yeah oh it's
0: amazing what you can hear and
2: that's, I, didn't, I didn't. I knew they covered it, but I had no idea they changed, switched the lyrics up. That's weird. So if they do
1: that, do they still have to pay? Oh yeah! <laughs> okay. Oh yeah! Yeah, you have to in order to. Well, first of all, if you're going to change lyrics on a song, you actually have to get permission. Right. So, like Weird Al has to go and get mm-hmm. all the clearances for he it. He doesn't. He doesn't fall in the the parody rule. No, he doesn't try to. He might be able to, okay. but he doesn't try to. Um, and in fact, he's been refused a couple of times. So, right. from my understanding, but yeah, no, the, the, just changing a word in a song isn't going to do it. Huh. You, you'd have to change it all, and then you'd have to get permission to change it, and then. then but but I have to say that every you know he was very he was at the end of the day he was very gracious he was a little concerned that that Ian didn't like him or something but hmm. I don't know why he would care about that's that but
0: that's okay
2: oh wow uh, you told me a new story about the the security council of minor threat in regards to the shoes to the logo because wasn't it a few years ago that some guys at uh, there was Nike
1: well it was Nike yeah, yeah. well Nike Nike actually, it's interesting what happened with that. I guess my understanding is that Nike, you know, is involved in all sports basically and tries to rule every sporting sporting event and every type of sport out there. They had not made any inroads into skateboarding. And they decided, corporate decision, that they would create this skateboarding department. So they went out and hired a bunch of guys, young guys, and said, build us a skateboarding business. And so these guys, I think probably rightly so, decided to get some pros, and put together a team, and and start doing some some events. Um, so the first event they decided to do was the Major Threat Tour, which would have been probably okay, except that what they did was <laughs> they parodied – when I say parodied they, – they did a rendition of yeah. the first EP cover of Alec with his head down yeah. on the steps. Well – we didn't know anything about it, but our army of Internet warriors <laughs> were out there. And next thing you know, all hell breaks loose. And we're getting – within a couple of days, we're getting you know these pictures coming to us, these JPEGs of these flyers that – the major threat tour. Well, instantly after what had happened with Quicksilver, where Quicksilver had produced a line of board shorts called the Minor Threat Board Short – but by the time we, we went after them, I'll, I'll tell you this whole – the whole thing about the apparel business, mm-hmm. particularly the hip, cool apparel business, is that what they do is all the time. They cop interesting words, phrases, band names, and they just throw the stuff out there. And by the time anybody catches up to it, it's already done. I mean the right. line's over, and they, they dare you to come after them. And so Quicksilver, I remember opening a magazine, there's a double truck ad, and it's the Myron threat board shorts. And I'm going, what are you, are you out of your minds? But when we did an investigation on it, we learned that the legal expenses of going after them was just going to be outrageous. So in the Nike case, we immediately went into action, and we simply put in some calls to their people, their legal people. And I think that they were sufficiently embarrassed by the fact that they had not had proper oversight over these very well meaning kids yeah,
2: they who, had probably had no idea,
1: yeah, I mean all oh, the <clears throat> corporate people had no idea of course. and and so they quickly settled with us now, not for the figures that i 've seen on I wish they had settled for the figures i 've seen online, <laughs> but it wasn 't anywhere near that, but it was it was a reasonable settlement that that to i mean the the thing about it is that and i i don't want to give the the you know the game away here, but I am a trained lawyer
2: yeah i was gonna say Um, did
1: this push you into
2: law more so than anything no
1: no this was afterwards this is afterwards um the the thing is is that you have a problem in any kind of infringement cases like this whether it's Mm. trademark infringement or copyright infringement a lot of times you're forced to show harm like in order for you to get money from somebody you have to show that you were actually harmed Hmm. well it's kind of hard to imagine that somebody putting out a poster that immediately gets shot down by all of your fans could show any real harm to you. It's more like just stop, you know, just, just stop doing it. And so the word to you all out there is if you, if you want to avoid any settlements, just don't do it in the first place, you know, just don't do it in the first place. But it's amazing to me that, and I, and I, I, I hate to say it, but I do think that in some cases, it's they didn't know mm-hmm. or they were just well-meaning people and then the corporate people didn't know. But I think in other cases, there's a certain amount of, of real like greed and a certain amount of, hey, you know what? You'll never come after us because we can – we have such deep pockets that we can hold you up forever. And by the way, try finding an attorney who's going to – who's going to litigate a case like this against Nike or right. Quicksilver or Warner Brothers. It's not going to happen.
2: So do you and Joe Scalante ever get into punk rock legal talk?
1: No. No, we haven't. We haven't. And
2: I
3: hope we don't. I feel like it isn't even exclusive to apparel. Like, I remember reading about the hot sauce or something. I feel yeah. Like you a showed up, me the hot sauce. The
1: upstate New York company that – I think it was upstate New York who did a hot sauce. But, you know, again, that was one of those things where my feeling was it was so far afield. The thing that bothered me about the Nike thing and the Quicksilver thing is that we have no we, – we all can sit there and go, who are they going after? Well – They were going after people for whom this name has a resonance, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you hear the name Minor Threat, you think something if you're the target audience. So that's when I got upset. The hot sauce was like, well, you know. I mean, no one's going to sit there and go. And it's really funny about the Quicksilver because my wife walked into the Quicksilver, the big store in Times Square. And she said, do you have the minor threat board shorts? And the young guy said, you know, with the spiky hair, said, sure we do, ma'am. Right over here, ma'am. And so she goes <laughs> over and she looks at it. And she goes, does this have anything to do with the band? And he goes, no way. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well, at least they're in the know as well.
2: Ah, oh, it's amazing. Well, I
3: think it's you guys just because I feel like minor threat is so synonymous kind of with credibility. And I think right. that's what all these companies want. And
2: I think so. But I- they're in that. That's the
1: harm. You know, if people think... Well, the harm, of course, comes if they actually think we're endorsing. But the yeah. fortunate thing is that, you know, most people never, never believe that we're endorsing it because they just know we don't do that. Mm-hmm. So anybody that we're really concerned about that might have a negative impression of us, it's, it's just not going to happen. And I mean, we, we've – there have been a lot of interesting things over the years. But, uh, you know, going back to the, the Security Council thing, recently we were asked to put a song into Entourage – for the final season Mm -hmm. and so the 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 offer came in from hbo and it came to ian and ian passes it out to the troops okay here you go let's talk about this one okay ian had never heard of the show jeff had never heard of the show and doesn't have hbo by the way and brian (laughs) said i don't think about the show i've heard it's okay so now i'm sitting there going I'm in a band of Philistines and I am now forced to reveal (laughs) my hand, which is that, well, I actually did watch the show in the first couple of seasons. So, and I said, you know, it's, it's an okay show. I mean, Jane's addiction does the theme song. I mean, I think it's all right for us to be in. And fortunately they all said, okay, we'll do it. And it was, it was fascinating though. um, And if the world of licensing of music is just a fascinating world. And so I was told, okay, the show's going to air and this is the scene. The scene is Vinny Chase goes into a police station. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the show comes on and the scene, you know, I recognize the scene because I guess it's he and E are going to go into the police station together. And so I see the scene start and I'm like, but what's happening is that there's this huge crowd of people cheering for Vinny, Vinny. And then there's like, And they're talking, they're having dialogue, and underneath it, very faintly, you hear something. But I swear to God, the first time I saw the show, I didn't hear it. My wife said, "What?" she she was upstairs, she said, did you hear it? I go, no, I don't think so. I actually had to watch it (laughs) two more times to even be able to actually hear it. And I'm thinking, they licensed this? They paid money? I could have done this for 50 bucks and sent it to them. You know, like I could have sat with a four track and (laughs) gone, na-na-na-na-na-na-na. Here you go. You can have it. So I don't I don't really understand the world of music licensing and and, and but that's that's a real point of you know that's a, a a part of the business that we've been involved in now for a long time and that's where it kind of gets a little sticky sometimes because you know my sensibilities are very different from Brian's are very different from Ian's very different from Jeff's and sometimes we do get to a point where somebody has a real problem with it. Um, we had an offer to do uh, what's the um, Rock band, the the game, yeah, and um, I was pretty ambivalent about it. And Jeff and Ian were, you know, were like, "Yeah, I don't know, whatever." And Brian just, you know, hit us with this: "I hate this thing. I've had to judge these things. I think it's ludicrous. If you got the money to go out and buy yourself this game and play this little silly plastic guitar, why can't you buy a real guitar and learn how to really play?" Didn't and religion, I was,
2: aren't they on Guitar Hero? Maybe?
1: See, that's the thing. I wondered about that too because I think they're on Guitar Hero. Yeah. And, but, but I was told that Brian wasn't able to make that decision. Well, that's true. So, um, but, but when he said that, I'm like, my eyes did open up and I thought, you know what? Aesthetically, I kind of do understand that. I mean, I, I still probably would have done it, but, but I get it. Well, now they have Rock Smith, so it's okay. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. No, yeah. I've seen that.
2: That's interesting. That is fascinating. Yeah. Have you seen that one?
3: No, what's that? Dude,
2: you plug in your guitar. And, and really? based on your level of playing guitar, you learn more, learn less. But like, you have to tune it, and you have to hit a G. You know, you have to play your guitar to the but game. Is it going to
0: be as popular?
2: <clears throat> probably not. because no. it actually, involves I, I'm, work.
0: I'm not in. I, I don't play those games, and I don't really enjoy them. But I, I'm of the camp that thinks that that it'll probably make more guitar players than it will not. And right. I don't think it's going to – I think that if you want to play guitar, you're not going to go, oh, well, I wanted to play guitar, but I'll just settle
1: for this. Well, you know the, other thi- the other thing that Brian said, because I, I never want to sell him short in the humor category, was he said, you know, he said, people should just go out and pick up a guitar and play. And he goes, on the other hand, I really don't want any more bad guitar players. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that's the, the flip side of the whole thing. It, it is
0: an obnoxious – it is kind of obnoxious.
2: I don't, have, I don't have all of those at my house. <laughs> yeah. we got a free one i think i saw it on ebay surrounded you by know? surrounded by guitar players yet again i
3: tried to sell a guitar hero yesterday because i'm moving out of my apartment and my ex-girlfriend had some and i called a bunch of places no one wanted them yeah
2: really? well they don't make them anymore oh really yeah they're done guitar Hero rock bands all done they don't that's you know, right yeah it's 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 over now how did you go from uh oh wait a minute we should dive in meet men's <laughs>
0: You know, I'm trying to remember because now I, maybe I put my foot in my mouth. It might have been just a Tesco V show.
1: Uh, well, which is entirely possible. When was it? It was
0: probably like '85.
1: No, that would have been me. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Providence.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What? Uh, remember, my fa- My father's place. My. I think it was my a, brother's it was place. The living room. Oh, the living room. Right. Sorry. Right. My father's place was Long Island. That's right. Long Island. Right.
0: And I remember an outrageous outfit.
1: Oh, I, he had so many.
2: I learned about the Meat Men in high school, yeah. and someone said, listen to this record. It's called Tooling for Anus. Yeah, that wasn't me. Okay. okay. So I'm,
1: not, I'm just going yeah, to, there's a, there's, a a, there's a pre-me, a me, and a post-me. Um, no, the funny thing about the outfits was he did, he was so great with those things. But the funniest thing was we were in Atlanta one time, and we were waiting, you know, sound check had been done. He says, well, I'm going to go to this thrift store down the way. And he goes. He comes back, he goes, you're not going to believe this. He comes back with, like, with these wild pink shoes. Okay, now that's fine, but they were in size 12, his size, size 12. <laughs> I mean, wh- wh- who? Well, I want to know what giant walked the earth in what era that was wearing size 12 pink shoes besides him, right? You know, You the know, um,
0: funny thing about that show is the guy. Uh, one of my friends who was at that show with me went on to play bass with Corey Clark. Oh. You know that Corey Clark, Corey Clark's dude ranch. Right, Cory well, Clark's Corey dude was really uh, this hated kid from Detroit.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. And, uh,
0: I don't know the whole story about why he was so hated, but well, I can was- imagine because I got to know him later in the... <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: The band Warrior Soul was his band here in New
1: York. Oh, right, right, yeah.
0: Self-righteous...
2: I remember well, well, the- Te- I remember Tesco V ended up on a on a on an RAM covers compilation called Surprise Your Pig. You know, it's Tesco V's Hate Police. Right. And it's him covering Radio Free Europe. And it's completely inaudible. Yeah. It's great. Really? <laughs> but I it's heard that. it's uh the whole record, it's like Jawbreaker's on there. Yeah, um, it. I remember Surprise Your um, good, yeah. good record. It was on yeah. like, Staple Gun Records.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I feel guilty geeking out on the meat man when, you know, obviously I'm a huge minor f- threat fan as well but it's just there was a moment in my life when the meat man just seemed to fit
1: (laughs) well it was it was it was a a lot of fun it was it was funny it started out was it was i was still in minor threat and tesco had moved from from detroit down to dc and he couldn't get a job He was a school teacher and he couldn't get a job he got downsized in detroit they laid off all these people and he came to dc and he was trying to get a job and he couldn't and he so so therefore he couldn't put his magazine out touch and go because he didn't have any money. So we decided, let's do a fundraiser and raise enough money for him to put out at least another issue. So he didn't have a band. So a bunch of us said, we'll be the Meatmen, you know. And so I – so we rehearsed a few songs and there was a bunch of other bands playing and so we only had to play a few. And it was – I don't remember exactly who was in it. It was me and Bert Quira's and and a few other people and so I dressed in drag and we went and did, the, you know, we did the show <laughs> and it was fun and everything. It was just stupid and silly. And then I don't know how it happened. Oh, then Tesco decided he wanted to record a, the Dutch Hercules EP. So we decided we'd back him on doing that. It was kind of fun to do that. So we did that. And the next thing I know, and I don't know how this happened, but the next thing I know, he and I are like planning how we're going to pull the wool over everybody and make the Meatmen into this big thing and the first target was new york city and somehow i convinced danceateria that we were going to play and draw like 4000 people okay and so so we so we've said about this idea of how we're going to do it. it involved a lot of stage costume changes but we didn't realize is when we got to the danceateria was that it had a spiral staircase that ran up to the stage and all the dressing rooms from the basement so in order to change costumes, you had to run down this metal spiral staircase and then run back up. And meanwhile, you know, so what we'd always do is have no dead air. Somebody had to stay on stage and kind of make some noise. Right. So I remember the bass player being up there and he's up there and he's up there and he's up there and he's up there. And you can hear him like, get more and more furious. We're downstairs trying to change clothes, you know. And finally we get back up on the stage. And the weirdest thing was that Brooke Shields was having a birthday party upstairs. <laughs> oh, which was so, just too oh, bizarre fuck. for me but Look, in the yeah yeah in the yeah, same, yeah, building. In the same <laughs> building and i don't yeah, I, yeah. I don't think there was any meaningful overlap <clears throat> there but it was it was really bizarre so after that we just started thinking well let's see if we can get a record deal <laughs> i mean it was so funny but it really was a scam i mean totally a scam it was just like can we? how far can we push this the thing? records were ridiculous oh
0: i love yeah. Ludicrous.
1: <laughs> the um, the everything we did was a complete scam. And and I mean, we didn't we didn't cheat anybody, but it was it was just like, let's see how far people will go. And then all of a sudden, you know, the president of Caroline Records at the time was this great. English gentleman literally like had estates in the countryside of England named Andrew Graham Stewart, who actually managed Tangerine Dream. He discovered Tangerine Dream as a student at Cambridge. And he's the one. Yeah, he's the one. <laughs> and Andrew, like some for some stupid reason, agreed to sign the band on the basis of a song called French People Suck. He said, if you, got, yeah. "If you as long," he said to me, "as long as you put that on the record, we, we can do a record." And, and, now, is this is this pre crippled children suck? No, this is post. Post. Okay. Yeah, but it was a variation on that. Yeah, it was that's the same true, song. Yeah. I mean, I remember, so, I remember that song. Wow. So that was the good old days of the record industry when you could get a record deal on the basis of just maligning one country, you know, oh. um, and and so it just went from there. And it, and, and the, the weirdest thing though was that. People thought we took it seriously, so they were they were nervous because I remember the Caroline people saying to me, well, we'll send you all the marketing materials. I was like, I don't care. they were like, what do you mean you don't care? Like, we have posters. We have this. I, I don't care. Well, years later when I ran Caroline, I discovered all these things in their vaults. And I was like, wow, they did a lot of stuff. We
2: didn't even know. We didn't care. Now, I want to get to the, the Caroline stuff, but did not you tell me that you were also in Hain?
1: Yes, um, we're we're sort of working backwards, which is good. Yeah. I kind of like it. Um, yeah, the, the the situation was is that right after Minor Threat broke up, Brian Baker and I, f- you know, full of righteous dedication to the craft, um, decided that we would call Glenn Danzig, and who had recently the Misfits had broken up, and create the idea of a punk rock supergroup, a hardcore supergroup. And that was to involve the three of us, uh, Chris Gates from The Big Boys on on bass and Mark from Youth Brigade on drums. Mm -hmm. And as I put it, Very quickly, the smarter of all of us being Mark and Chris dropped out. (laughs) In fact, they didn't even make it to New York to rehearse because they realized very quickly that this was not going to work very well. And so Brian and I ended up trying to work with Glenn, which was very difficult. Um, I want to be really careful here, but, uh, (laughs) but it was very, very difficult. And then Brian said, I'm not doing this. Okay. I'm going to go form this band called Dag Nasty. I'm going to do this thing. And I said, okay, fine. So then it's just me and Glenn. And I'll just give you one story to kind of illustrate the way it was. Glenn came down to D.C. And for some reason, we found ourselves in an A.M.P. supermarket. Now, don't ask me how this works, but I guess we went there to get provisions for a rehearsal or something. And we're standing in line, and he's not saying anything to me. He didn't talk to me all that much. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in front of him, and I hear behind me, don't you just fucking hate everybody. And I'm like, no, not really. <laughs> I mean, Sixty, seventy percent of them maybe, but not everybody. That was the kind of thing it was. It was really weird with him. So I um so so I so I stuck around with Glenn for a while, and then it morphed into this idea of Sam Hain. And I think I think I made it known to Glenn that I didn't want to be in a comic book band. Like, I loved Glenn singing. I thought it was great. I thought I could do some interesting stuff behind him. He wrote some interesting songs very crudely, but I could adapt them and make them into songs. And I said, yeah, this might work. You know, this might be kind of interesting. We could kind of do a Bauhaus meets kind of like, you know, punk rock thing. And... And you know, the Misfits were horrible. I mean, like, if you ever saw them live, they were one of the worst things. You couldn't even. I remember being so into them and seeing them, and they would start playing. And until it got to the chorus, I couldn't tell what song it was. It was that bad. So, so I said, okay, well, Glenn, let's, let's get some, (laughs) let's get some really good musicians to play with us. And he said, No, I've got two guys from Lodi. And I was like, Oh boy, you know. So I'm in DC. He's in Lodi, and, uh, which I had never heard of and, and actually have never been back to knowingly. I think I've driven through maybe once or twice. But so he, so he says, No, I've got these two guys. Well, these two guys turn out to be one of them turns out to be Erie, Erie Vaughn, who, God bless him, but at the time could not play. I mean, literally could not, I mean, you would, he could not fret. He could not, it, you'd say A, and it was hopeless. You'd say fifth fret, and even that might be a challenge, you know. I mean, it was that bad. I mean, he really tried, but it was that bad. And then I think the drummer was a guy, I forget the drummer we had at the time, and he really couldn't play either. So we decide we're going to go record this record. And we go into the studio in Jersey, and we start recording. And I realized quickly that I was going to probably have to play a lot of it parts, you know, I couldn't play drums, but we got a decent drum performance, and we kind of fudged the bass parts a little bit, and then I did all this guitar stuff, and I remember the, the engineer saying to me, boy, you know, it's amazing, you actually can play, like, because they have been recording the Misfit mm-hmm. stuff, goes, you can mm-hmm. actually play. I said, yeah, why is that such a you you have no idea, <laughs> like, what we've, well, we've been through for years, you know, <clears throat> and so Glenn does this wonderful thing, and it, it really sounds fantastic, and so I was pretty excited about it, because it was very interesting music, you know? And what happened was, is that we decided then to play a show, and we played at the Rock Hotel, and the first couple, first thing was Glenn was really sick, which was bad, because, you know, the whole thing is the vocal, and mm-hmm. he's not feeling well. The second thing is, is that I arrived by train with Brian Baker and my girlfriend at the time, and... The amps I've requested are not there. I've requested Marshall amps, and there are like two Fender Twins sitting there. And I and I'm like, wow, thank God I brought a distortion box, you know, or I'd be in real trouble. For
2: the benefit of those who don't play guitar, that sounds like a big deal.
1: It is a big deal. Okay, yes, it's a big deal. It's a, it's a. I mean, when you're used to doing something for years, it's kind of hard to change up. But so, so okay, so we do the sound check. It's okay, fine. So I say, well. Brian and I, we're going to all go out to dinner. So we go out to dinner. When we come back, I walk into the dressing room, and they have put on these outfits. They've got the devil locks going. They've got the, the spider. Geary had a black Spider-Man outfit on, <laughs> like one-piece thing. And I'm looking at them, going, oh, "Wait a minute! We never discussed this. In fact, I discussed the opposite that we wouldn't do this." <laughs> well, fortunately, I'd had I'd had the you know the foresight to have at least pack a pair of black jeans and a black T-shirt. So we played the show, and it was just atro- it was atrocious. It was just the worst thing in the world. And we played a couple of misfit songs, and we did our songs, and it was so bad. And quite literally. I went backstage, and Glenn's like, "You know, do you want your money?" And I said, "Sure." And he gave my money. We ran and got the three fifty two train in the morning back to DC. And that was the last I—that was the last I was involved with. It. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was just, you know. And what happened was Glenn got so angry at me, which I, to this day I don't really understand. Although I talked to Erie about it, he just said, "Well, it's just Glenn." But but he got so angry at me that not only did he not want me to ever be in a band with him again, but he went back and took all my guitar parts off the record and overdubbed his own guitar playing to make it sound worse (laughs) to make it sound infinitely worse he did the same thing with the misfit stuff by the way really a lot of that early caroline collection stuff was all glenn over doing his overdubs on it and and so you know he puts the record out and and i and I remember, like there was this tiny, yeah, you know, Lyle Pressler played on tracks one and two. I mean, it was this teeny, as small typeface as you could possibly get, you know, font size. He just put you know, Lyle Presser, tracks two and three, uh, but he erased everything. And then, but I was like, oh, I have a cassette of it somewhere, but I can never find it. Erie doesn't have it. Of the rough mixes, mm-hmm. I would have loved to have heard what if it was actually as good. And then I actually did hear. A tape of the show, and I was surprised it wasn't as bad as I remember it. It really was. Your, your, your head was just still full of capes oh. and oh. makeup. And- oh. I mean, I was so—I I mean, I felt like I was standing up there, like just smiling, you know, playing. Like, hey, don't look, don't look at those guys. Just look at them. They're they're really cool, you know. Oh man. And the other thing was the poster said, "From the ashes of Minor Threat and the Misfits, come Sam." Hey, like from the ashes all right because yeah. everybody just combusted <laughs> yeah we all combusted burned dc down you know now
2: the timeline so so leave minor threat meet men sam hayne then where do you go to do you make a decision like i'm maybe not going to play that much anymore i'm going to go into the industry like what how did that happen well
1: i went back to school to get my degree from georgetown and um all the time I was in school, I was doing the meetman thing. We'd like on the weekends we'd go to Florida and play a few shows, and you know. But it was all just basically part time. I was also working at the time because I had to pay for a lot of things for school, so I had a lot of things going on at that period. So that's roughly 80, 85, 85, 86, 87, 88, like in that period. Um, and really during that period, I realized a couple things. The reason I qu- sort of quit was because. First of all, I realized it just wasn't that good, you know. I, I mean, I, I wasn't a really good musician. I wasn't a really good songwriter. I was able to work. Wait a minute! Didn't 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 you write in my eyes? Yeah, but but I'm I'll, pretty I'll, good song. I'll, I'll sort of I'll sort of explain that. But the thing was is that what I came to understand, and and this is something that people, I think, everybody who likes music doesn't really understand, is that you can get a bunch of really good musicians. On stage, and they can perform just fine, and it'll sound great. But there's an intangible, a sort of what I just for lack of a better term, magic. There's a magic that makes you love the band, and you you don't necessarily know why you love the band or the artist. I mean, you could say, well, it's it's the tasteful guitar parts, or it's the wonderful drumming, or it's the the great singing. But usually it's more than that. Usually it's just something that, ka- that resonates with you, some sort of magical and tangible that you have and as a group or as an individual. And we've, that explains a lot of quirky stuff that sometimes you try to categorize it and you can't, but yet it just happens because it somehow strikes a chord with everybody. And with Minor Threat, I mean, I think it really was lightning in a bottle. I mean, it, it really it was to the point where you got four guys in a room who could just communicate with each other without communicating and could play the music and could write the music and put it together. But once I moved out of that thing, I realized how difficult it was to get that back again. And, and I yeah, mm-hmm. it is practically impossible. I mean there's a few people in life who've done it. I think Ian did it um, with Fugazi and with Meyer Threat. Oh, but I think and I think Dave Grohl did it, but I think very few people have ever been able to do it because it is it is very difficult. And and so I'd start playing with people and it would be like, okay, this is good, this is good, but there's nothing there that just makes me feel like I'm really in this. I'm really communicating. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> So after a few, you know, abortive tries with that, you start saying to yourself, hmm, if I can't make a living doing this, mm-hmm. then what am I going to do? Now, the contrast would be Brian Baker, who is so talented as a guitar player that forget about bad religion. Brian could have made it doing whatever because Brian was playing. Brian played on the Rico Ocasek record, the solo record. I mean, Brian is that good. He can't sight read. And that's a problem, for him, <laughs> you know, for, as a, as a session musician. But he's that good. I mean, he was asked to he was asked to go on tour with REM. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, it, you know, he's he's in that category. But I wasn't in that category, I and mean, there was just no way that I could I could be that guy. So I sort of felt like that's one thing. The other thing was is that the world the world of playing music is so up and down. I mean, you ride these waves that just you know lead you into these troughs that are just insane. You know, one minute. We're going to Poland, and we're going to be—it's going to be subsidized by the Polish government. The next minute, you're not going anywhere, you know. And you—you you start emotionally; it becomes very difficult to ride those waves. And—and and also, I knew I wanted my degree. I wasn't sure what I could do with it, so of course I go to—you know—go to Georgetown University, spend hundred thousand dollars, get an English literature degree, you know, which is just the greatest. A lot mar- of money in that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of money, a lot of money in English literature. Um, and so I'm sitting there, going, "Well, what am I going to do?" You just wanted to hang out at Smash. Was it Smash even there? Smash was
2: there <clears throat> by that point. Yeah, and Commander Salamander. Commander Salamander was definitely or, there. Or now they call it Hot Topic. Mm.
1: Is it Hot Topic now? No, it's not. But that's oh. that's where Hot oh, Topic got Prince, everything. Yes, of course, of course. Um, but so so after after graduating, you know, I just bummed around for a little while, and then I said, "Well, you know, it's time to really do something," and and I. I said, well, you know what, I like music, and I like working with music, and I kind of like, at this point, like being more behind the scenes of what's going on with music. I'm not interested in standing on stage, I'm really just interested in in helping people do stuff, and I knew one guy in the record business, because he was at Caroline, and, you know, he had put out some of the Meatman records, and so I... Moved to New York, and I started working as a paralegal because that was the only job. I I couldn't get a waiter job in New York. They'd be like, do you have any New York experience? No. Goodbye. And I'm like, but I worked in D.C. I was a bartender. Mm -hmm. No. No New York experience? Get out of here. So – By the way, saying you were a bartender and you're a
2: minor threat is probably the best statement. Yeah. Oh yeah.
1: No. No. I I was good too. Yeah. I didn't. There was no inventory control problem there. You know, with me. Um, (laughs) Like now, that probably wouldn't work so well. But at the time, it was was great. But the. um, But so so I knew one guy in the business. I just kept pestering him every year. You know, I'd send him a bottle of champagne at Christmas. You know, and that kind of stuff. And then finally one day he said to me, you know, would you be interested in doing this job? And I said, yeah, I'll do it. And so, you know, I walked into Caroline Records and made $22,000 a year and sat in a room smaller than this with six people, you know, where you couldn't back up your chair without hitting somebody. And it was it was it was fun. You know. We
0: were you there in like ninety four, ninety mm-hmm. three? That's <clears throat> I met you then with um probably with Bill Wilson from Blackout Engine. Ah,
1: of course. I was in the goops. Where does right, right, where does Bill live now? He's in Jersey. Is he in Hoboken? He
0: was. I think he might still be. He yeah. was. I haven't talked to him in a couple. I of
1: I was at the grocery store in Hoboken a few years ago and this guy is standing there and I'm like Oh my God! And he had sunglasses on and the whole thing. And I, but I couldn't remember his name, so yeah. I didn't. I didn't want to say anything, and he didn't recognize me. So, to, yeah. But yeah. So so Caroline was an interesting place, and and it was just um, it was right on the front lines of the indie rock revolution. Um, we we've all read um, our band could be your life, so
2: yeah, right,
1: right. <clears throat> don't don't let's not get into that. <laughs>
2: Really? That wasn't a good experience.
1: Well, Did you get stuff wrong. We've had, uh, Well, like... let me let me just say this. I mean, I don't know how many people you've talked to about this, but I've had people come up to me and literally say, "I am going to lay a trap for Michael Azerrad and kill him." Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've had people say it to me, uh, and and I think, but I have to. There's a big disclaimer here. When he was writing that research in that book, I got a call from him. I got a message from him, and at the time, Minor Threat didn't communicate that much together. So I didn't really know what anybody else was doing. So I just ignored it. I just ignored the message. And he never called back. Hmm. And so I never spoke to him. And so then he goes and he writes the book and he writes the chapter on us. And, and I have to be fair. Like the only way you could write a book like that would be to go back and look at source material, interviews that were done at the time. And there's no other way to do it. So I'm letting him off the hook on, on all this stuff. The problem was is that a lot of what he used was stuff that was either hearsay or was said at the time when people were upset or angry at each other hmm. but wasn't really the prevailing thought. So when the, book, when the book comes out, I didn't read it but somebody gave it to me and I finally read the chapter and I was mortified really because, really? because Brian and I come off like the worst people in the world and he and Jeff look like the best people in the world. And Brian is really, really angry about it. Like, I mean, huh. he he's really – I'm not. I'm a, I am figure that I have ample time to correct some of the the the, the, <laughs> the things that I don't like about it. Brian was pretty upset about it. And, and Ian was just like, well, look, you know, I don't even care about this stuff. So, I mean, if you guys care about it, then deal with it. Hmm. But I don't care. But I have run into other people from other bands who were profiled who were really, really angry. And I'm not going to mention their names because they may not want to cop to it, but – They've said to me, you know, I mean, I'm going to kill that guy. Jonah, do you have Azra on Speed Doll? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I
3: don't know him very well now.
1: <laughs> but but, but I, again, I have to be very careful here because he did give me a chance to talk and I just didn't take it. Oh, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't really realize what was going on. I mean, I knew his name, certainly, mm. but I just – I didn't – and so I've learned now not to let those opportunities pass. That's really interesting. It's I interesting. thought about that. What, yeah.
2: about, what about Dance of Days? Were you involved
1: in that? Nope. Oh, interesting. Okay. Now, that's one that was really bizarre because they never contacted me, which was, which is really weird. But like I say, things have changed enormously bet- between the band members so that if someone were to do that now, and it, it has happened, you know, everyone says to everybody else, like, okay, somebody approached me about doing something. I told them you they have to talk to you, they have to talk to you, they have to talk to you. So now we're sort of on, you know, in commu- we're, we're communicating with each other about what t- type of tack we would take and whether or not we would be involved in it. And if, if and I know now too, because of my relationship with Ian, that Ian will say, have you talked to Lyle? Are you going to talk to Lyle? Mm -hmm. Before he goes out and just makes a statement. And I think we've also gotten much more careful about, I don't want to speak for anybody. I don't, it's not fair for me to say, well, Brian thought at the time, Mm -hmm. you know, because that's not necessarily what Brian either wants to say today or did actually feel, you know. Hmm.
3: My introduction to the band was one of my favorite documentaries. I had a VHS copy of Another State of Mind. Sure, sure. Which was amazing. And I was curious, I mean, what was, what do you kind of remember about that period? I mean, that bus pulling up or like, what was that like?
1: I remember it well, actually. Um, We, you know, we knew they were coming, obviously. Um, And you have to understand that in those days, there was a circuit, like a whole circuit. Like if you went to Detroit, you stayed with so and so, and you did with so and so, and you went to Boston, and you went to LA, you so and so. And um, so we knew they were coming, and we were really friends with the guys from Youth Brigade. The brothers, you know, and and we'd stayed with them in L.A. And they were pretty interesting guys and very, very, um, you know, they were all the thing about the West Coast guys as opposed to the East Coast guys. They were super organized business people, hence Epitaph. Yeah. You know, we were not. We were like anarchists. They were, you know, already lining it up. Let's get a CPA. Let's do, you know, let's let's get all the sidebar.
2: But no state of mind. You said Epitaph just because you have, <laughs> I think, a good point of view on this. Talk to Brett Growitz about another state of mind, and he gets really angry really? about that because there's um social distortions playing in the way it was edited it cuts to bad religion's crowd to make it look like oh. social D. and if you met i like I said something I was like, oh yeah, I just saw you guys in another state of mind, and he like made fists wow he was like, he's like gets so irked about it wow. wow that's interesting man interesting, and he said for years, no one could get a copy of it because Mike Ness had it, or I don't know how he. I think he eventually put the DVD out, right? Because right. I saw it on a VHS
1: as well. Well, I'll day. tell you that you know they rolled into town, and by the time they got there, they were fighting so horribly amongst themselves that it made us look. I mean, you know, Minor Threat was famous for like we were like the Who, you know, people could could punch each other at any moment. It hadn't gone well from was my impression, and they were fighting so badly amongst themselves, and Bad Religion in particular were at each other's throats, and. So DC's famous I think it's in the film that that's when they break up, right? Yeah, yeah. And but the only funny story I know about it is that the guitar player had these great guitars. Like he had a whole bunch of really great vintage guitars. And Brian and I would be eyeing them, you know, like <laughs> hmm. So there was there was one so he took off. The, the 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 guitar player just takes off and flies home. And so I don't know I don't know what possessed us to do this, but so I go up to, like, I forget which other guy, but I'm like, so so-and-so took off. He's like, yeah, motherfucker, you know. We said, did he by any chance leave his guitars behind? <laughs> and the guy's like, yeah, I think so. We were like, oh, you guys need money, right? <laughs> well, we'd be willing. And we had our eyes on one particular <laughs> Les Paul SG custom, you know, cream finish, beautiful whammy bar thing. Good for him. Took it with him. <laughs> they uh, couldn't find it, and I mean, I, Brian and I were just basically like, "Good for him. He, you know, he didn't. He didn't get screwed on that. This. Would have been nice. <laughs> yeah, he probably would have come after us. I think you know at that point. But, but yeah, that was an interesting thing. And we, we I mean, we weren't really part of it. You know, they just rolled into town, and we all like went and play. mm-hmm. we played a show in Baltimore. I think it was. It was a pretty weird show. I mean, we had so many weird shows that it's that they all meld. I love the
2: fact that you can see most of your weird shows now on YouTube. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the amount of video that's sprung up is amazing to me. And, I mean, I think one of my favorites is uh, the one where just the PA goes out. Oh, yeah.
1: And yeah. just everybody sing along. Well, we actually had a show in California um, where the people who were, were hired to bring the PA in got so upset with us that they pulled the PA. They said, well, we're pulling it. Before we even went on, so we said, "Well, we're going on. You can pull it around us." So you can imagine the scene of these poor people. We're playing; people are staged on me, and they're trying to pull their microphones and their cabling <laughs> and pull their wedges out and everything. And it was, and we were just like, you know what? Because they were totally unreasonable. They, yeah. What was typical of that period was that you were dealing usually with, in the technical areas, you were dealing with kind of old line rock and roll mm-hmm. guys who thought that we were from Mars, you know, and didn't have any respect for us whatsoever. So we would show up and they'd be like, oh, these idiots, you know. And as soon as we had some sort of technical thing that we wanted to talk to them about, they were so dismissive. Well, these guys finally reached a point where we were like, you know what? We don't even care. They'll sing all the words. We don't give, we don't need a PA. We'll just play and they'll, you know, and sure enough, the whole audience, Ian just directed them like a, you know, conductor and they did the, they did the lyrics and, and the, and the vocals and, that was it. I saw Ian speak at um,
2: I was at Coachella once, and he was he was talking there, and he said something that was uh, it was you know it was right after the discord uh, 20 came out right. um, and he was talking about that because I asked him a question. I said, "You did a lot of press for that. I thought you wouldn't talk to those magazines, and he went, "Yeah, damn it." And he was like, "I't know why I did that." <laughs> <laughs> um, but he said to the crowd, uh, people forget that there are more people in this room right now." Than minor threat played to, in their career, Mm -hmm. absolutely. He said, "You know, the videos, the footage. You know, it's because you know it's a certain
1: angle lens. It's not going to catch everything. Not a lot of people there. No, you know, no, no. And as a matter of fact, you know, I think I think the biggest show we played was the was the roller rink show in the valley in L.A., Mm. which is the one where it was this lineup." It was a youth brigade thing. They, they put the Better Youth Organization thing they put together, and it had everybody. It had Suicidal tendencies. It had Channel 3. It had us. It had—I don't know if TSOL played that show. Maybe not. I mean, it was just, just incredible lineup of bands. And so you waited and, you waited, and you waited, and you waited, and you waited. And then we were the headliner, and we go on, and we get six songs into it. And somebody gets stabbed in the parking lot, and the show ends. And there might have been 1,500 people, 2,000 people there. That was the biggest show. Oh, wow. The funny story about that, was though, the next day, I'm like so pissed off because I waited so long to play this <laughs> show in front of the biggest audience we'd ever played. And I get cut off, and I'm so pissed. And the next day, we're right – <laughs> I guess Mar from Youth Brigade and I go ride, and he's like, oh, I'll pick up a friend of mine. So we pick up this guy, and we're talking about the show last night, and he goes, yeah, man, that guy was just causing so much trouble I had to stab him. And I turned around in the seat, and I looked, and I went, you're the guy who stabbed the guy? <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm just sitting there going, I can't believe this. You ruined my whole night. And he's like, well, man, sorry, but the guy deserved it. And I'm thinking, oh, jeez, L.A., L.A. But
2: that's all you heard about Heard. <laughs> He speaks Weird. like that. That's uh, so how you heard about, you know, of every, um, you know, documentary or whatever. Like, I went to the American Hardcore, the the premiere of that, mm. which was hilarious because I'm sitting there and, and it was um, it's up on 23rd uh, and uh, in, in walks, uh, walks Daryl. That's Jennifer.
1: another thing I wasn't invited to, by the way. I was looking for you. No, I yeah. think I might have texted you. No, I, I wasn't call. invited because I don't have, I, I'm not, that's that that guy and that thing i'm not that was weird That sh- that that movie was horrible yeah that movie basically i had people tell me say you know i had a friend of mine in la who took another he and his wife wife girlfriend <clears throat> took another couple to see it and they were mortified because they had talked it up you know hardcore was great Hardcore was and all it was about was violence all it was about was like how violent and i'm yeah. i'm thinking wow I, I went to all those shows you know, I did see some crazy stuff, but most of the time, nothing happened. Now, L.A. was weird. The, everything
2: you hear about Black Flag is that it was I just watched the the other F word, mm-hmm. um, which is a pretty good documentary, and they uh, interview crap. What's the guy after Keith Morris and Black Des. Flag? No, it wasn't Des. It wasn't Des. No, after? It was the guy. It was the guy before Des. After Keith, bef- like two before Rollins. And he and he and he like quit the band because he was tired of all the violence at the shows. Moved to Canada and has been like this. You know, he's got like six kids, very happy. And you know, they show him going to a record store, going, "There's your dad." And they're like, "What?" And it's really great. But talk about the violence of those shows. And that was that. that just seems it. They were like every time there's a Black Flag show, there was a fight. There was violence. Some, something was going on. And I, I don't know, everything I've read, it didn't seem to be the case with a lot of bands.
1: No, it really wasn't the case with a lot of bands. I mean, you, you know, w- the thing about stage diving and, and slam dancing was that there was always going to be somebody who didn't get it, who didn't get that it wasn't really violence. It was just sort of more or less like a, a rugby scrum, you know. And 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 so you'd have like occasionally someone would get in the middle of it. We always had a problem in D.C. that Marines would show up from the local base. And they thought that it was like an opportunity to beat the shit out of people. Mm-hmm. And they'd be quickly escorted out. I mean, that didn't last very long. But L.A. was weird because – and L.A. is a weird place. But L.A.'s scene was so huge and there were so many factions of that scene. You know, you had the Hermosa Beach guys, yeah. the Huntington Beach guys. Then you had – Huntington
2: Beach is like where like the slam net like, started. Yeah.
1: That's pretty much where it started. That's split. where it began. Yeah, the H.P. punks. Yeah, that was yeah. pretty much where it started. And the other thing was, though, I, the only thing I remember was standing out in front of the – I think it was the Olympic. And I was standing with these guys, and this squad car goes by. And it's, there's nothing – there's no police presence. There's nothing happening. And the guy throws a bottle at the squad car. And I'm just looking at him going, are you what, – what are you trying to do? They're not doing anything. you know." See, also the, the difference, too, was that we came from D.C. And I will say something about the D.C. police. The D.C. police are so used to dealing with demonstrations and so used to dealing with security. They don't get freaked out. But we went into Northern Virginia one time and just because there were 30 people milling outside a club, the cops came in with with billy clubs. They couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle the idea. In L.A., I think the police were pretty brutal most of the time. They still are. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a big place. There's a lot of stuff going on. But I think. I think the kids out there were trying to antagonize the cops. And obviously, when you have songs by Black Flag, you know, saying, fuck the cops. Mm-hmm. Well, you're exhorting people to have that attitude. And, and so it happened. But really, American hardcore made the thing sound like like everywhere you went, there were people dying in the streets. And it just didn't happen that and way. And also, that documentary, to me, seemed
2: to not focus on... It's, it seemed to focus on their band, their favorite bands, the filmmakers, because, you know, they get to L.A. And yet again, I've brought this up before. Everybody always skips over the Descendants. Right. Who are the most influential, mm-hmm. you know. the um, One thing I did like about the movie. Well, when, when, when I'm in the theater, mm-hmm. uh, first Daryl walks in, then Dr. No walks in, then H.R. walks in. Everybody was like, <sighs> like what's going to happen? Yeah, you know? And right. he did during the film, get up and wander around the theater. While yeah. everyone's watching, which was oddly expected, but in the middle of the movie, uh, they interview Brian, yeah. and he said that Minor Threat's first show was opening for Bad Brains. Yeah, um, and that he was like, "Our first show is opening for Bad Brains. Like, why would we do that? They were so good." Yeah,
1: I don't, I don't know. I mean, the, the chronology of that, he might be right about that. I think he's, but but let's put it this way: we did open. Like, very early on, we opened for Bad Brains. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to agree with him. Like, Bad Brains, at that point in time, were pr- probably one of the best live bands that's ever set foot on stage. They were absolutely unbelievable. I don't – look, you could go now and see whatever iteration of them, and it's, it's fine, but it's not what it was. I mean, because it was so freaky to begin with. Like, here's, here's these, you know, four black guys – you know, playing to a white audience, doing this crazy music, and they're so good. I mean, they can mm-hmm. play so well, which was a contrast to almost everybody else. In fact, we really did, We, I wouldn't say we patterned ourselves after them, because we didn't, but we we had, we had decided that the expectations should be, we, we should be able to play as well as them. Like, we should be as tight as them. And if we're not as tight as them, then we've done something wrong. So they were really, they they drove us to be better. And... And I remember – I saw them before I was ever even in Minor Threat. I saw them in essentially what was the front room of a house that had been trashed and converted into like a, a performance space. And it was just – I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, you know, not, uh, HR doing backflips, like standing backflips. I, it was i it was incredible it was absolutely incredible and it sounded great and it had all those great tempo changes and all the starts and stops and it was everything was just fantastic and it was daunting mm. to play in front of them it really was i mean that's one of that's i think that's the only band that we were ever kind of like oh boy we better <laughs> be good because everybody else in fact i think one time we played with dead kennedy's out on the west coast in in san francisco and and uh uh Jello refused to, like, go on after us. He's like, you guys are going to headline tonight because I'm not I'm not doing it. <laughs> I will not go up and do my thing. In front of my home audience, I will not do my thing if, if you guys go on before us. So, you know, that, but the only other time we opened for anybody that I can think of was PIL. Oh. Which was a really horrible, horrible, horrible oh, experience. God. I almost quit. Like, it was so bad. Jeez. Oh. We... The, the story, I'll tell it quickly. Uh, there was a promoter in D.C., a young guy who, who decided to book PIL at the Maryland's Cole Field House. Coalfield House was like a, a basketball court, like the old, the old Maryland University mm. basketball court, um, just this cavernous place. And, and so he, he books PIL and he offers them like ludicrous amounts of money to come, which he can't cover. Mm. And so he's got these really high ticket prices, really high ticket price at the time would have been $25. Right? <laughs> so, and he's the sales are terrible. So, we get a call from the woman who ran 930 Club, Dodie Bowers, and she mm-hmm. calls up and she says, You know, would you guys be willing to open for PIL? Um, and we said, No, you know, <laughs> why, we don't have any interest in that. She's like, Well, look, you know, the promoter's really in deep trouble here, and, and, and he really needs to have you help him out and if you if you were on the bill then you could you know you could you could do okay. And so we said, "Well, how much money are we going to make?" And so finally we start talking to the promoter, well, "How much money?" Are you make? He's like, "Well, I can't pay you anything." We're like, "Well, why would we do this?" Well, for some reason, I don't remember why we decided to do it. Um and so so we go to the show and PIL's there and they are uh, they are the nastiest worst people you could ever imagine I mean I'm not really a big British fan but these guys were just taking it to the roadies were worse than the band <laughs> as you can well imagine and so what they do is they go in there and they sound check for three hours hmm. okay Keith Levine can't seem to get the synth go right and all the other. and of course Leiden is just sitting there teasing everybody and making fun of everything And so, and then, I mean, I actually liked them. That's the thing. I mean, I actually did like them. And so we, so we, we, we finally, finally tell us the doors are opening in five minutes. We haven't, we haven't sound checked. So we're hastily putting our equipment up and the roadies going, isn't it a bit late for your bedtime, mate? You know, all that kind of crap. And I'm sitting there going, oh, this is just ridiculous. So finally the crowd comes in and. We go on and the lights are doing all this crazy stuff and it's just nuts and, you know, and finally Ian goes, okay, stop, you know. Okay, lighting guy, turn off the lights, turn on the house lights. Now, the house mm-hmm. lights in a coliseum, I mean, that, that is not a good look. Man. <laughs> that, is, that is definitely not a good look. <laughs> so now we're playing, we play the rest of the set, you know, with the light, with the house lights on and it's really weird, but it seems to go fine. So, I you know, P.I.L. then comes out. And P.I.L. was so pathetic that they actually had to play the song Public Image Limited twice in nice. the set. Yeah. It's always a good sign that you don't even have enough material to do it. So so I walk out of the place. Oh, and by the way, the roadies ate our deli platter and threw our clothes all over the dressing room and all that sort of stuff. So that's, it was a real nice hazing experience. And I, so I'm so disgusted. I go home and I, I'm thinking, I just don't, don't want to do this. Like, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to live through this This garbage. And I wake up the next morning, and I think I was staying with my mom. And my mom says, "Hey, come downstairs. There's a there's a review of the show last night in the Washington Post." And I said, "Uh, all right, you know." And I go downstairs, and there's just they used to do these little column, little capsule reviews, and then they do a big review. So it's a little capsule review, and it's written by a guy named Howard Wolfing, and. It says, Meyer threat, Meyer Threat, Meyer Threat did this, Meyer Threat turned the house lights on, Meyer Threat, Meyer Threat, Meyer Threat, Meyer Threat. And the last line of the review is says, and P. I L also played. (laughs) And I was like, I win! I win. I know Howard. Yeah. He's he's a publicist. Yes. And And I've told I've told I told him, I said, You actually resurrected the whole thing for me because I was so depressed by the show that, you know, it was great. It was great. But we, you know, we did that. I think we opened for the damned one time, but other than that, we really didn't open for anybody, mm-hmm. but so opening for the Bad Brains was a very daunting thing. I can imagine, yeah. especially especially at that point in time for right. them, just
2: so full of just amazement. Now, peak now. yeah, uh, peak—that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> well, then then it that's got we have more people. On yeah, the podcast.
1: then it got really really weird with the whole Rasta thing, and yeah. then then you couldn't even talk to HR anymore. And it was like he would just quote Bible passages to you, and you be like, yeah, man. You know, we used to hang out in Adams Morgan, like, stop it, you know, but and then they got into this weird thing where they used to, like, they insult the audience and call them names and stuff. And that was the point where I reluctantly said, don't give any more money to these people. They would also get their equipment stolen all the time. Hmm. Hmm. It's amazing how many times their equipment got stolen. (laughs) The insurance company seemed to be a little skeptical of the whole thing as well. Fascinating, <laughs> fascinating. They had that positive mental attitude. I mean, yeah, you gotta. They did, and they turned it into cash, <laughs> 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 which is a good thing. They made PMA and ATM, yeah, right? <laughs> ATM, that's
2: right. Right on. Um, so we're at Caroline, and I just remember you telling me this story, and I just enjoyed it so much. The Danzig wait was this? Yeah, Caroline was a Danzig box set. No, excuse me, Duh. Misfits box, Misfits set. box set. Yeah, yeah. And how you got how the music went from not being around to eventually being okay, sold? Yeah,
1: it's actually what what had happened was by the time I got to Caroline, there was mm. already a lawsuit going on. Ooh, excuse me. That was that was the, that was the
2: chair. Yeah. Well, my stomach's <laughs> been growling too. There's so, nothing you know. I'm going to be able to say to make people think that actually was the chair. No, absolutely I nothing. I'm going to fart for real now, <laughs> just to have it. Just to
0: show. Yeah.
1: When, by the time I got to Caroline, they, there was already this impending lawsuit because the other members of the band, of, of, of the Misfits, were suing Glenn. Um, and that was, I believe it was um, it was the, the two brothers and Robo, the drummer. And I don't think Bobby Steele was involved in that, but I, I'm not mm-hmm. sure. In any event, the thing was is that in all lawsuits like that, Caroline had been putting out – the Misfits stuff. But what they had been putting out, as you probably know, were these collection one, collection two, mm-hmm. which, as I said, were really bastardized versions of those songs. Well, Glenn had overdubbed stuff on them. And, and that was what had represented the Misfits since the seven inches and since the early records. And Glenn really had controlled the whole thing. And apparently what had happened was is that Glenn had just basically stopped paying royalties to any of these guys, or at least that's what they were alleging. So the way the suit worked was because Caroline had been putting out the records, they named they named Caroline in the suit. Okay. Now, you see, these lawsuits take forever. I mean, by the time I got there, the thing was already two years old. But it was sort of slowly moving its way, you know, through the system. And finally, it reached – I didn't realize it because I wasn't a I wasn't business affairs person. But it kind of reached this crisis point where it looked like, you know – the judge was probably going to rule against Glenn and against Caroline. And so there would have to be money paid to these guys. So what we did was we hatched this plan where we would buy from Glenn all of the misfits' masters, everything, lock, stock, and barrel, for a certain sum, Glenn would turn around and pay the other guys a certain sum, and Glenn would would participate as a royalty. He would keep his publishing, and he would participate as a royalty person in the sales of any further Misfits records. But the guys would get – the other guys would get the right to use the name. So Glenn no longer has the right to use the Misfits name. Okay.
0: Did they want that? Is that what
1: they wanted? They wanted that. But they wanted the money more than anything and to be actually on a royalty schedule. So, okay, so actually, they went for this, which was a good deal for everybody, really, because Glenn didn't have the money to pay them, and there wasn't any way they could extract it from him so so we the deal was done, and so now they said, "Okay, Lyle, you know, now get all the masters and I said, fine we'll just we'll just call Glenn, he'll just send them to us. Well, that's not working <laughs> that, that's that's not happening. He's not returning calls. So then one day – so then the guy was working with Tom Begroitz, he – who was really the product manager on the whole thing. He he said, you know, I got a call from the brothers, and they want to come in and talk about the masters. And I said, sure, because, you know, I mean, like they may know stuff that we don't know. We're not getting anywhere on this thing. So (laughs) we set up a meeting in the office, and they come in. Fully decked out, like (laughs) fully, the whole thing. They walk in and they're like, you know, and and, you know, Jerry and Doyle, you know, there's Jerry and Doyle, you know, and the whole thing. So we show them to the conference room and Tom and I go in and they start a presentation. Okay, about. The masters that existed, what's out there and like what they're doing and whatever and their drummer, Dr. Chud or somebody's there and all these weirdo people are there. And they're talking – they're in the conference room and they're going – and they're screaming and they're talking so loud and so – that the sales guys in the pit thought we were being beaten up and rushed the door of the conference room (laughs) thinking that – They're they're killing our people in there. These monsters with these devil locks are killing our people. So they rush in. It's not what's happening. But the wonderful thing that came out of that was that we sat there and we said, okay, guys, is there actually an album called Static Age that was recorded in 1978? And they said, yes, because this has been the rumor forever and ever and ever. They said, yes. And we have a cassette of it. And I said, where did it come from? We've had it in a bank vault all this time. And sure enough, there it was, sequenced and everything, all the way down the line. So now, you see, now we know it exists, (laughs) right? So we go back to Glenn, and we're like, Glenn, you know, what about static? That did not exist. Well, Jerry and Doyle say it does. They're lying. It doesn't exist. Like, well, look, man, you have a court order to hand over everything. You need to get it to us. You know, well, it, all the tapes are gone. Well, client, how could that possibly be? You know, well, yeah, yeah. so he stonewalls us for just months, right? And now I'm starting to really worry because we've paid out millions of dollars on this thing. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'm getting and the people above me are kind of going, Lyle, Lyle, like, come, where's the stuff? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, so. So I'm talking to Tom like we are in trouble here. We're in. I mean we advised them to do this deal. They are going to crucify us. And then all of a sudden we're sitting there talking about it one day and the front desk calls and goes, you guys got a package out here. So I go out and I get this big huge box from Lodi, New Jersey from his father and we start opening it and the tapes are coming out. The tapes are coming out and then there it is. The real to real, static age, 1978, studios. And it was like, oh, my God, we have found it. We have finally found it. And now I know that Glenn, if he had had his way, probably would have destroyed it and just said it never existed. But what he did instead was he called from L.A., dad, just pack up all the tapes in the basement, and send it over to these guys. And that's what showed up. So now, you know, we have the tapes we had to bake them because you know i don't know if people out there it's like uh, there was a period of of manu- magnetic tape that was they changed the formula and what's happening is it's all decaying really fast and the only way that you can transfer it to a digital source is to put it in the oven and literally bake the tape so that the molecules stay on long enough to have a pass through the machine. You have to get it usually on the first try. And as the tape was going through, you just see the things flaking off, just flaking, flaking, flaking. So we transferred it all so over. one shot. Yeah, pretty much usually one shot, maybe two. Yeah. <laughs> I actually saved something in England from a band called The Ruts I because I, I asked for it, and they said, oh, my God, if you hadn't told us, it would have been gone within a couple of weeks. And they managed to get it onto digital so that it still exists. Um, but but the, we, got the, we got all the material, and then we put together that box set. And that was uh, that's done well for everybody, I guess. I mean, it didn't do particularly well for me, but I, I think everybody who had a stake in it is done really, was really well. Was your idea to put it, put it out in a coffin? Well, it was Tom, Tom and I were really the ones working on it. We thought coffin would be great. We didn't realize how much it would cost. <laughs> um, we hired a guy, a designer, to build it for us, and, and I mean— this was like a grammy award-winning packaging guy and the yeah. bills the bills were outrageous but the the actually the only funny part of it if if you have the original one static age comes in this sort of weirdo like black box like that slides open it's got the
3: it's got, it's got, the, got the low though the, the, low, the other low, ones crimson the ghost right them, yeah. right
1: and and so we had seen this because spiritualized had done this box but there's glowed in the dark it was really cool so we saw the package so we said i said we got to get that package. So Tom tracks it down, and it's this company in England that does it. Well, the next thing you know, the guy flies over from England. I'm going, what, 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 we, didn't, we don't even know what it costs. Well, what it cost was just so crazy, that, and you had a minimum order was 50,000 units. So I said, just do it. So he, does, <laughs> so he does it. So I sign off on it, and I send it to accounting, and the finance guy comes to me. and he goes, uh, hey, Lau, could you come in here for a second? It's like, um, what is this? I go, don't worry about it. He goes, what do you mean? I go, don't worry about it. It'll be funny. He goes, it's fifty thousand units. Don't worry about it. We'll sell them all. I'm like, oh, we're not gonna sell these. Well, I don't know how many they've sold, but it's way more than fifty thousand.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. All over the on on my iPod. You Was know
3: that version is she the demo with
1: the organ? Mm-hmm, and stuff? The organ. Yeah. See, we found all that kind of stuff with organ on it. It was amaz- amazing stuff, and and once you'd stripped, you see, once you'd stripped away all the bad guitar parts that had been laid on, all the other parts that were laid on top of it, it actually a lot of that stuff was really good. Um, and the fact that it was from that period, like a lot of it was from '78, like that's right square in the middle of the whole you know punk rock thing that's happening in New York. So it
2: was it, pretty... now, was Bobby Steele involved in any of that stuff, or
1: Bobby Steele? Um, Made a several pleas, but we didn't have any kind of, you know, way okay. of including him. Um, you know, so we sort of said, well, you got to talk to so-and-so. I'm not uh-huh. sure whatever came of that. I, I heard that Bobby got something out of it. That's was, what I heard. He was at the American Hardcore. Okay. <laughs> trying to sell his, like, what is it, Undead? Is that oh, name? yeah, Undead, right, trying sure. To the, trying to sell right. Undead CDs.
3: So all those master tapes are in your basement somewhere, hopefully? No, no, <laughs> no.
1: I, I don't have any stuff like that. Um, but... Uh, Yeah, it was, that was a, that was a fascinating experience. And, oh, and the other thing was, the other funny thing was that when we talked about doing, you know, putting out all the stuff, the other guys, you know, Jerry and Doyle were like, we could come in and do overdubs on it. And it was the first time I think a record company has ever said, no, 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 don't improve it. Like, leave it the way it is. Now, do you have, aside from
2: Minor Threat Complete discography, there was a remastered version of that.
1: I guess. Yeah. 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 I just know it was blue. Yeah. Um,
2: uh, who's got all those masters? Is that just
1: collectively you each have like a set or? No, no. Discord has all. Discord's things. got everything. Yeah, okay. yeah. They've got everything. They have a tape vault and, you know. Oh. And fortunately, the stuff that we recorded was before Ampex changed their formulas. So the, the recording tape that we have is stable. Oh, that's good. It was okay. only a – it's fascinating, but there was a brief period, I guess, of three or four years where I think they – it was a little bit longer. The longer than that, and and all those tapes are in deep trouble. But anything before and after is is pretty stable. That's of course, now we've got digital, so no yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's really it was a really fun process. I remember being in this guy's studio and literally going to the oven and sticking the tapes in. Yeah, they know. made tape
0: ovens just for that. That's
1: right, they did. They made tape ovens. I've heard that t- for me and yeah. Please, please let me tell me they said easy bake on the yeah. side. Yeah, <laughs> easy tape. <laughs> oh, God, that's
2: ridiculous. That, how nerve wracking must that have been, just watching this misfits stuff? Well, right, because you know,
1: you just know that if you if you screw it up, it's over. Yeah. Yeah. Like you got you have mm-hmm. no other sources to go to. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, theoretically you could go to other sources for things. You know, mm-hmm. like you could go to seven inches or you could go to vinyl, but mm-hmm. it wouldn't that be cassette. Yeah. That came out of the. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but still, it was it was it was pretty nerve wracking. Yeah,
2: but if it's a misfits vinyl, it's probably a bootleg, which means you had to take out all the tuning. Yeah. <laughs> I remember sitting through that in high school going like are they gonna play?
1: (laughs) Even
3: Evil Live, yeah. Yeah for
1: sure. Oh, because and and, I mean well you gotta understand, like, I think Doyle strung his entire guitar with d strings like <laughs> for those of you out there there's different there's different gauges there's different yeah, thicknesses yeah. of strings so he just strung the entire guitar with one string <laughs> and you can i mean you can it wasn't meant uh, to be uh, done that way there's a reason why you don't do that it sounds horrible not to mention like these giant stacks of speaking they have i don't know what they were doing no,
0: i'm a <coughs> message fan but yeah I've- it's it's pretty unbearable. Some of that stuff, and I, I have heard that live it's just atrocious.
1: <laughs> it was really. I think
3: bad. it's amazing that you worked with Glenn after the Sam Hain thing down the road. That
1: well, I, I will say this, um, Glenn Glenn instructed his attorney to call me to tell me that I was never to speak to him again during this process. So I said I said okay fine then you'll just talk to Tom, and then Tom goes out there for a meeting with Glenn. And the first thing Glenn says to him, how come Lyle won't talk to me? <laughs> I mean, like, I'm under pain of lawsuit not to speak to you from your attorney. And he's upset with me about it. So it just shows you can't you can't please him. That sounds like great preparation for having kids, though, probably. Yes. Dealing with- yeah, that's right. Well, it was very much like that. Yeah, it was very much. <laughs> of course, I have to be fair. I think if you had been, you know, Ian or Jeff, you would have probably thought that I was a child, too, you know, when, when I was in the minor threat. So uh, how... Want
2: to end with how often
1: does the band get asked to reunite? Um, well, you know, I'm not really sure because I don't usually get the. Re- There's not like an official request mm-hmm. that comes through, and I'm sure that people would probably talk to Ian more than they would ever mm-hmm. talk to me um, about it. So I don't. I don't think it's such. A, it's such a non-starter mm-hmm. that it's never even. Right. It's never. It never flows through i'm sure it just gets cut off at the moment there 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 have been a few things over the years where people have actually put together kind of a plan like a generalized plan this is how many dates not us but other right. people out there promoter yeah. people have said you know this is how many dates we could do this is what we could charge this is how much money you'd make and you know i have to say that if I if I had done something like that, my financial situation would be significantly improved.
2: Well, how you gave me a, a minor threat T-shirt, mm-hmm. and you, the band has never done anything like that. And I remember I was wearing it. Sometimes some kid at Trader Joe's was freaking out. He's like, "Did you make that?" And I was like, "No." The guy <laughs> in the band gave it to me. And then Trisha's like, "Why? Why do you do that to people? <laughs> like because of that? Because it's hilarious." Right, now I'm gonna leave with my chocolate covered almonds. We make fun of his Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. Right. See you later, jerk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, uh, nice tribal tattoo. Well chosen. Um, uh, was leading up to something with that. Uh, not reading. Oh yeah, no merchandise. Because someone uh, mentioned to me that there was talk of doing T-shirts specifically.
1: Uh, a polo with the sheep oh i don't know anything about that no i don't i don't think so i mean we do we did sign a merchandising agreement if we finally signed an exclusive agreement because we were getting tired of the bootlegging so many right and it still hasn't stopped of course but we were also getting sort of tired of having these multiple manufacturers out there who didn't really have any reason to try to like grab for anything they didn't really have any reason to try to get things into more stores because they would just take what they could get so we did a deal and and it it's always subject to submission of the designs and the ideas for the shirts and you know one of the things that's been a bone of contention is doing shirts for little kids and and i i'm opposed to it because i just don't like the idea of the kid who has no choice being dressed up in something like that you know I, i think that's that, if, it, if it says Baby Gap on it, that's one thing. But if it's you know, if it's you know, Minor Threat or the Misfits, I don't you know. Let me find the I picture know, of know, my daughters know, with their and, Descendants and onesies. My my wife put a Minor Threat T-shirt on 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 Romey a couple times, and and I was like, Would you if you do it and you want to go out with her, that's fine. But when she goes out with me, I'm taking it off, you know, kind of thing. Um, no, it's just it's just that I don't think that that's but that's no it's not a big deal. But for the most part, it's restricted to T-shirts and. Mm. You know, sweatshirts and stuff like that. The, again, you know, I will say this. Ian doesn't care anything about merchandising. Right. He, but he has acquiesced to the rest of us saying, you know, people want it. If we don't do it, you're going to get dubious quality stuff that's bootleg. So why not at least control it? Oh, yeah. You know, and and I, we don't sell a lot of merchandise. I mean, we really don't. I mean, certainly by comparison to to some bands, you know. Oh, yeah. And because also we have very little graphics to work with at this point. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you know, any new band or any current band can come up with all sorts of graphics to use. We're restricted to what exists, basically. Well,
2: the, the T-shirt uh, that you gave me is um, uh, out of – yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And um, that's a Glenn Friedman right. photo. So you have to deal with that too. Yes, we did. We did, we did, a, we did a deal. We have an arrangement with Glenn. And he's bonkers.
1: Well, and I say that after
2: he any, came on the show he came right? and, I, and I interviewed him and someone yeah. told me, might have been, might have been you had time and said like, just, just like Glenn, Glenn's a good guy. Beware. And the it was whole a good interview though, it's great. Well, well cause I could, I had to calm him down right? because he freaked out that he couldn't bring on fuck you heroes on the show. As we explained, it's TV. We can't right. blurb it. And by the way, you're here to talk about the Fugazi book. Who else has asked you? This is what I said to him. I said, who else has asked you to do press about the Fugazi book? Nobody, exactly. So calm down. Right, right, right. And then the whole reason he came on is he said to me, Ian said you were cool to talk to. Because I had uh, spoken to Ian and um, what the fuck was the name of the magazine? Some British magazine did a Ben Kingsley video of of him singing Minor Threat. Yeah, oh yeah, that was great. Lip syncing and they made it look like the old 930. That was great. That was incredible. So I got. in touch. I forgot all
1: about that. Yeah.
2: So I got in touch with Ian, um, either through you or somebody, and spoke to him on the phone and said, "Hey, can we air this? Right. And put this and like bill it as a minor threat video." And he said, "Yeah." Mm-hmm. He said because we were doing this thing that Jonah wrote called Rock One Hundred and One, where like if you like this band, this is where it came from. Right. Like this mm-hmm. is you should you should if you like any of the bands we're playing, might want to learn about these things. So we would do this, and we we're going to air it's first ever minor threat video exclusive. Uh, rock 101 and uh, the show got canceled. Oh. In a weird way, very punk.
1: <laughs> yeah, very punk, exactly. No, Glenn 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 is a is a fascinating guy. I mean, obviously he he has um his photographs of skateboarding are like the go-to and hip hop, to, right,
2: to be in the right moment for so many iconic scenes starting.
1: Well, the thing about Glenn was that Glenn was a guy, I mean, I've never, I've encountered a few people like this in, your, in my life, and I'm sure you have. There are people who can, I don't know what you want to call it, scam their way into anything. I mean, mm-hmm. people who, I have another friend who's a writer, a journalist, and he can like, you can go to a hotel where you have like, a basic room and you suddenly have a suite for no more money hmm. and i don't know how he does it i've watched him but i don't know how he does it's just something about how he does it we went to we went down to, to philadelphia and we, we 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 were supposed to check into this hotel and he's like we're, we're getting suites and i said joe what are you talking about we're gonna get suites and he's like come on with me come on he goes and he starts sweet talking the woman at the front desk and the next thing and this guy it wasn't just a girl it was a guy too and the next thing you know we just we got suites you know, I mean I know people like that and Glenn was one of these people yeah. who could who could somehow manage to either ingratiate himself or bust his way through and always be there. Always be there. But not in a really annoying way. You know, not one of those people where you're like, "Oh god, he's hanging out with us again." kind of thing. He would always but he also was such a pro. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had the skills. So it wasn't like you were looking at somebody who just wanted to you know, when you saw his, when we, when I first saw his skateboarding stuff, I couldn't believe it. I was just, whoa, this is the guy who's been taking all these shots that, and, you and, and he says, and I want to do you guys. And I'm like, whoa, yep, okay, yeah, all right. I can't skateboard for, you know, save my life, but, you know. Did he, were
2: his photos also for the, the re release, the Minor Threat demo?
1: I don't know. I don't okay. know which, which photos were used there. There was some, I mean, I, there's a random photo in the middle of, of,
2: of, uh, it says, uh, Henry Garfield. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Just randomly, just stuck in the middle of the of the fold-out. That, that's great, actually. Yeah. 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 I don't know that he, I don't know how he feels about that nowadays, uh, that people know his real name. I think he talked about it. Did he? I don't think he cares anymore. Did he
2: talk about, it. He, he he talk about it and Get in the Van? I can't
1: remember. I think he, yeah. the, I mean, I think when he was in Black Flag, he was very sensitive. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Because there was, you know, there was always that problem of the, you know, being a, pulled over every five seconds. Well, when you ride around in a van that the door falls off, when you open it and you've spray painted the whole thing. You know, I'll tell you one funny thing about that, you know, touring business. I was driving home from D.C. We were in Pennsylvania somewhere and I pulled into this gas station, you know, self-serve gas station. And there was this minivan parked over getting gas, I guess. And it was like the entire, it was a band, obviously. And the entire van was covered with Grateful Dead. I mean, like when I say covered, I mean every square inch of the thing was like Grateful Dead, Fish, you know, every kind of you know, smoke pot, you know, so and so and so and so. And the other guys in the band were obviously in the quickie mart buying whatever they were buying, and the driver was sleeping, slumped over. Okay, and I wanted to to wait for them to come out and just walk over and say. Let me just give you a little (laughs) bit of advice here, okay? One, he can't drive, okay? Two... This is this is probable cause, okay? Like you drive this thing through a town, the police are like, "Okay, no problem here. Pull it over, search it." Yeah, exactly. It's. I mean, it, you just, all the money
2: your parents have is yeah. going to go to uh, Texas colleges if you drive through right, Texas.
1: Right, exactly. Every ounce. Every ounce. I mean, we when we toured, it was like just keep it as low key as possible. <laughs> don't want any trouble because you never know, especially going through the South, man. You don't know what's going to happen. We talked to a guy here on the podcast who's. Uh, their first tour
2: bus, uh, tour van, uh, belonged to a Christian youth group, and it got them out of
1: all oh, the tickets. Yeah, that's great. Well, we got out of things because Ian looked like a Marine, <laughs> so we had a number of times when when cops would say "Semper Fi" to him, and he'd be like, "Yeah, you know, I, I mean, because hey, whatever got you through the night, you know, is good. It's a that's, good deal. That's
2: genius. All right, uh, we're gonna wrap it up. Should I even do these or bail on them? Mm. Give me your yeah. Give me a ruling. Forget it. Mm. Um, I actually, have one more question. Sure. Yeah,
3: I was just curious. Sort of as an adult, what's it like for you to kind of be talking about this such a brief period when you were so young? Mm-hmm. I mean, what's it like kind of looking back on it or the fact that people are still so interested in it? Well,
1: the, the way I look at it is that in many respects, it it is not me. Um, there have been moments where I, I mean, I don't sit at home and like watch myself, you know, or listen to myself. But there have been moments when I've seen something, some piece of video or heard something, and I have trouble on a visceral level connecting with that person because it was so long ago and it was so far away in terms of my life. Like, I see the person, but I don't feel that person anymore. I remember. So from an intellectual standpoint, yeah, you know, I, I can – and I could tell you stories and we can go through the whole thing, but I don't necess- – I can't capture the feeling of what it was like to be doing that because I've just moved so far away from it, um, it it it's a little bizarre. But I've made peace with the bizarreness of it. And I, I, it was weird. I, I did this little thing with this British band in Central Park and played a song with them. And when I got off the stage, there was like the enemy wants to talk to you. I was like, Pfft, right. And this, and you know, we couldn't get arrested in England. I mean, we I mean, we could have gone on a, on a killing spree. And this was recently, this was the vaccines. Yeah, this is the vaccines thing. And this guy wants time. This guy's a young guy, and he's asking me all these questions. And I actually at one point said to him, "I said, when did you, when did you, you people start caring about this stuff?" Well, I guess they did a long time ago, but I didn't notice my experience. So it was weird for me to talk about something to an audience that I didn't think even cared. So there's a little, but there's a real, there's a real disconnect. But at the same time, like I say, I've made my peace with the fact that people are still interested in it, and I feel you know somewhat obligated to to talk about it um and i'm proud of it i certainly never run from it um but i don't have the real sense of of what it was like what i was in that context i'm like so i've moved to such a different point in my life i will say one funny thing i was with some friends a number of years ago in boston And we were riding up the up escalator at a mall and coming down the escalator the other way was a group of punks and one guy had on a minor threat t-shirt. So across the escalators, I said, hey, man, cool band. And the guy gave me the finger and said, fuck you. And I was like, there you go. That's it.
2: Brilliant. Mike, how do you feel? That was Lyle, Lyle Pressler. Did you get to ask that? You were texting me questions about Glenn Danzig the whole time. Yeah.
0: That's just why I, I got questions, but they're going to remain unanswered.
2: <laughs> we'll get we'll get Lyle back in again. Lyle is one of the contenders for uh, Jonah and I trying to get members from every band that was featured in Our Band Could Be Your Life. Yes.
3: So that's a really good one. Minor Threat, I thought, would be one of the harder ones yeah. to get.
2: And Lyle doesn't Lyle doesn't do much. Yeah. Which is pretty rad. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Lyle Pressler of Minor Threat. Ah, just awesome. Next week, another stellar episode of Going Off Track. Yeah!
3: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.